when I was a kid, I had a biology textbook that I don't, I don't remember like where in the book it was, but I remember the page. And it was in the lower left-hand corner of the page was a picture of a snake and a little rhyme to help identify what the kind of snake was and whether it was poisonous or not. And the, the rhyme was, red on black, venom lack, red on yellow, kill a fellow. And it was a, a picture, it was actually two pictures of two different snakes that looked similar in their red, yellow, and black striping. But depending on how it, the, the, the striping worked, you're supposed to identify in your mind whether the snake is poisonous or not. And I don't really know if anybody confronted with one of those two snakes would immediately like start running through the scenario in their head. Like, is this the poisonous one or the non-poisonous one? I, th- I think most people would like deal with it or get out of the situation and then go, hey, was that a poisonous snake or not? But the main lesson I took away from that, that rhyme was some snakes are out to deceive you. Some snakes look poisonous and are poisonous, and some snakes are poisonous but aren't. So the main lesson that I took away from this, this, this biology textbook was don't believe what you see when it comes to snakes. So after we moved here, I think it was on the third or fourth day, I was in the basement with the kids. We were trying to get the basement ready, bring their, their things in, and one of the kids noticed that there was a, a, a snake. Well, he said it was a snake, and I thought he saw the air conditioning tube, but he saw a snake. Turns out there was a snake rubbing itself on the window because it wanted to get cool and come into our house. I didn't know what kind of snake it was. I just know snakes are deceitful, and this one wants to get inside our house. So I go outside, and I killed the snake. And right about that moment, Neil Cooper comes driving up, and I was like, so, like, my first experience here is killing a snake, and then one of the deacons coming, and, like, there's the pastor out here slaughtering snakes. Well, then I end up looking, and it turns out this snake is not poisonous. And I memorized the markings of it. Because, again, like the main lesson I had learned is snakes are out to deceive you. Don't trust what you see. Like, just kill them all. <laughs> and just, just decide later whether it was safe or not. And so I, later, uh, uh, the, later in the summer, I was walking to get the mail, and a, a snake goes slithering across my path. But this time, I was like, that is just like the snake that was at our house that was not poisonous that I didn't have to kill. And since it's not trying to get into our house, I can let it go. So I was thinking of that story because... The main lesson I learned is snakes are trying to deceive you. Kill them all. Is, uh, you know, they're trying to, to fake you out so you don't know what you're looking at. You know? And I was thinking that because this week we're looking at a, a parable that Jesus tells about being fooled. Specifically, Jesus talks about how money will fool you in, a, in the parable today. Just like Snakes that camouflage themselves so that you think that they're worse than they really are. Money, treasure, and possessions can easily, easily fool you. So go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. When I was a college minister and then when I was a church planter and I've been a pastor, people have often asked for prayer. People have asked for help with sin. Nobody's ever asked me for help with treasure. But that's what Jesus is going to deal with today in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 13. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus says, or I'm sorry, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, help us to not be tricked and to not be fooled by money. In Jesus' name, amen. This, this is parable is kind of framed around three, three audiences that Jesus speaks to. You see, first, somebody in the crowd comes to Jesus and says, teacher. He doesn't say rabbi. He just says, teacher. Like, you're, you're, just, you're a teacher. And so he comes to him with a problem. This is Jesus who they bring the sick to, they bring the blind to, they bring all sorts of people to Jesus and he heals them and he teaches on all sorts of topics. And this man comes and says, can, can you solve this problem for me? My brother isn't dividing the inheritance with me correctly. At the time, older brothers got twice as much inheritance as younger brothers did. We don't exactly know what the problem is with the inheritance, but Jesus speaks to him and is like, who made me a judge or arbiter between you? Who, who made me the person that decides between you two? What, what I think is happening here, that Jesus is doing here, is he's saying, why are you, why are you trying to distract me? To just become this judge making decisions about who gets how much belongings in your house. This isn't my ministry. This isn't what God has called me to, is to come and be a lawyer who's helping with the estate. Jesus, I think, is speaking to the man and saying, don't distract me from this ministry. This man thinks that the most important thing in his life is an inheritance. And here is the God-man, the God of the universe, standing in front of him, and what he cares about is getting the inheritance right. And so Jesus is like, your priorities are way out of whack here to the man. Then Jesus turns to the the crowd and says, this is where verse 15 is. Then he said to them, he turns to the crowd. So he's spoken to the man. Now he speaks to the crowd. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So he's told the man, your priorities are on your inheritance. Don't, don't let that be your priority. Now he's turning to the crowd, and he's, it is so easy to think that your life, the, like the worth of your life, the security of your life, the importance of your life, is in how, many, how much money and how many things that you can own. And Jesus warns them against this, this, warns them against this and then he tells a parable. And the, in the parable, he says there's a certain rich man with an abundant harvest, and the man is sitting there going, man, I don't have 
place to store all my crops. And as I was reading it this week, one of the things that I noticed is the man has barns. This isn't a parable saying nobody should store their grain anywhere. But this is a rich man who's like, my barns are full. What if I tear these down and build bigger ones? And and not only is he like, let's tear down the barns that I have and build bigger barns, but it's what he does once he has stored it all up. Notice what happens in verse 19. He says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The man has basically made the measure of his life the size of his barns. The man, he has, he, it's not, well, the man has a, uh, he has a retirement account, and so therefore this man is a wicked man. No, the man has a barn. He's just like, I'm not going to be able to take it easy to eat, drink, and be glad until I have bigger barns. The verse that we read earlier from Ecclesiastes, it's, the always, it's that temptation for, well, I can be happy when I have more. This is what Jesus is warning against in this parable. And he, because the guy is like, hey, I've got bigger barns now. I'll take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. My retirement account is bigger. My savings are bigger. My house is bigger. And, but then verse 20, this is why this is so foolish. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You have set your happiness in how, what you can get and how your house is bigger and your grain barns are bigger and your retirement account is bigger. But tonight you may die and you've wasted all of this time instead of eat, eating and drinking and being merry and being glad because the Lord has given you life and given you time. You basically put all of that off and instead put your security in yourself and what you have. But you don't even get to govern when you live and when you die, Jesus says. Verse 21 says, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The, anybody who has basically made the measure of their life and the richness of their life, not their relationship with God, not being loved by God, not by having a good shepherd who says, I will feed and provide for you, but who is basically stored up things for themselves and making their happiness and their security what they own. That's, what Je- that's the, the second audience that Jesus speaks to. And then ver- flip over to verse 22. This is where Jesus then turns to his disciples. So he has spoken to the man and said, why are you trying to distract me from my ministry? Then he turns to the crowd and says, like those of you that think that what you have is the measure of your life and you can now finally be happy. Now he turns to the disciples. And this is what he says, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, could add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this, I'm sorry, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. 
but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice that Jesus is here speaking to his disciples. He's spoken to the man and said, you're so distracted so that you think that my agenda should simply be your inheritance. Then he speaks to the crowd and says, you think that the the happiness of your life is going to be measured by what you have. And then he turns to his disciples and says, you you will constantly, remember, he's telling this to the disciples, you will constantly be tempted to think that your security comes from what you have. Even though you're following Jesus, you are going to be tempted with worry about what you're going to eat and what your clothes are going to be, about about all of these things. And he says, you are going to be tempted to use treasure to make yourself secure. If the crowd is tempted to make their lives happy with treasure, disciples can be tempted to make their lives secure with treasure. But, but what if I don't have enough money? What if I don't have enough of this? What if, and so it's this constant fear that I think identifies this temptation disciples will deal with that we are alone and if we don't take care of ourselves, nobody will. If, if you're like me, you go, yeah, yeah, I do. I know what it's like to worry about Well, what happens if I lose my job or what happens because I have lost my job? I have seen my my income is like zero and I don't know where the money's gonna come from for the next six months. If you're like me, like you go, Yeah. Sometimes we wonder how do we recover from the job loss? How do we recover from being out of work for two months because of pain and the bills pile up and I didn't have disability insurance? Like Jesus is coming to disciples who are tempted to worry. And he's coming to a crowd that's tempted to think that their gladness will come from what they own. And he's going to a man who's tempted to think that like, the most important thing in my life is not Jesus and his agenda, but it's me and my agenda. And Jesus comes and says, treasure exposes our hearts. Treasure exposes our hearts. Each of these groups is being exposed by how they react to money and possessions. And Jesus is saying, don't let it fool you. Don't let it fool you. Man who thinks that your inheritance is the most important thing, don't, don't let it fool you. The, the, the crowd that thinks that money is going to mean you can finally be happy, don't let money fool you. Happiness doesn't start there. To, to, the, to the disciples who are tempted to think, nobody is going to take care of me. If I don't take care of myself, Jesus says, don't let money fool you. What I want to show you today is I want to show you the the three ways that money and possessions fool us. To this man, I think this man helps us identify, as Jesus addresses him in verses 13 and 14, that money and possessions promise us that they are the most important. Right? So Jesus, the God-man, is standing here healing the sick and restoring sight to the blind, and giving, like, he's raising Lazarus from the dead. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And the man is just wanting to make sure that he gets the right amount of money. 
And Jesus is saying, that is not my agenda. My agenda is not making sure everything in your life is fair. You're trying to distract me to become simply another teacher, simply maybe like one of Moses' judges that we see in the book of Exodus. There's somebody who's just trying to make agreements in between people so that everybody's life is people. people. And Jesus is like, my, my agenda is not your money. Jesus is not just a teacher here. Jesus is not just a life coach for this man. Jesus is not just a life coach for you just trying to improve our lives. and try. Jesus is the king of the world and he's not going to let this man or you and I distract us from what Jesus is actually about. You see, the inheritance that Jesus offers his followers pales in comparison to the share this guy is supposed to get from his dad's estate. The inheritance that Jesus is offering his people is far better than this guy can imagine. And I think that Jesus is telling this guy, don't distract me from what I'm supposed to be about. In the Gospels, there are a number of times where Jesus tells people, don't don't tell anybody what you've seen and heard. Which is kind of a weird thing to say. Like, Why would Jesus tell a man who's sight has been restored, who can finally walk? Why would Jesus tell somebody who's seen a miracle, don't tell anybody about it? This this is something that's called the messianic secret. And the, the reason that Jesus goes and tells people, don't tell anybody about this, is not because he's, he doesn't want anybody to know that he can heal the sick, that he can restore sight to the blind. The reason Jesus doesn't want anybody to, is because he's like, I don't trust you to get my agenda right. You you don't know what I'm up to, Jesus is saying. Because later, when it becomes extremely clear to the disciples after Jesus' death, resurrection, and him teaching the disciples for 40 days, then he says, go and tell. But until they actually know what Jesus' agenda is, he's like, don't tell people. Because I don't trust you to get it right. You don't even know what I'm up to. You're just going to tell people that I'm here to make you happy and healthy and wealthy. And so Jesus is like, don't distract me. My agenda is far better than you can imagine. And so this is an invitation. The money and possessions, they come to us and they promise that they are the most important thing in our life. And this, this story calls to us to see Jesus' worth and Jesus' agenda is far better than, we, than just a retirement account. Than just, a, just getting things equal in our family after the death of your parents. Jesus' agenda and Jesus' worth is far better than that. And so money and possessions will come to us, whether you're a four-year-old child, 10-year-old child, 15-year-old, 30-year-old, 60-year-old, 80-year-old. Money and possessions promise you that they are the most important thing, and Jesus' worth and agenda are far more, worth far more than that. Jesus', Jesus worth and agenda are far more worth more, far more than any amount of money that you could get in the world. Do not let money and possessions fool you. The second way that money and possession try to fool us is that money and possessions promise us happiness. Verses 15 to 21 is where Jesus addresses the crowd. Again, notice that he turns to the crowd after speaking to the man and says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus tells a parable where the man is already rich and he already has barns. And it's not a judgment on a man having barns and not a man about, about a man having riches. 
This is a judgment on a man who's like, I can finally be happy because my barns are bigger. And Jesus is like, your money and possessions can be taken at any point. They are not yours. No amount of money can buy your life. No amount of money can make sure that you never die. And so don't put your satisfaction and your happiness in money. If you are a parent or a grandparent speaking to your kids or your grandkids and trying to coach them about what direction should we go in life, what kind of job should I get, give them a vision of life that, is, that there can be a happiness and satisfaction beyond money, not just getting a good job and getting more money. It's, I, I'll be honest, it's tempting. Like We know what it's like when you don't have a job or the, bill, the money can't cover the bills. Like Money can, money can be helpful. But we want to give a vision to ourselves and to our kids and to our grandkids that money cannot buy satisfaction and happiness. And so that that temptation is to say, my life is measured in what I have, in the way that my house looks, in the cars that we drive, in the money that's in our retirement account. And to say, ah, I'm finally going to be happy. And Jesus says, no, money and possessions promise happiness, but they can be taken at any point, and then you will be left with nothing. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 24 in Jesus' resurrection appearances, because notice this guy has said, now I can take like easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Like I can finally be happy. But if we look at the resurrection account in Luke chapter 24, what happens after Jesus' resurrection, when he walks on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples and he talks to them, and then when they realize who had just been with them, they say, our hearts burned within us. We were so happy walking with Jesus. And then later we see Jesus' appearance to his disciples uh, after the road to Emmaus when he shows up to the disciples in the upper room and he teaches them for 40 days. The gospel dis- di- it explains to us the disciples were filled with great joy because they'd been with Jesus. And so I think money and possessions promise us happiness. And what we see in the book of Luke is the disciples weren't actually happy until their hearts burned within them because they'd been with Jesus. And so so Luke is inviting us, Jesus is inviting us in the book of Luke to eat, drink, and be merry because Jesus is risen, not because we have more money in the bank. Eat, drink, and be merry, not because we, everything in our life looks right and we like our clothes and we like what our house is like. We know that our retirement is secure. No, eat, drink, and be merry because Jesus is risen. And don't let your happiness depend on stuff. Don't let your happiness depend on stuff. The third way that money and possessions try to fool us is money and possessions promise Jesus' disciples security. Money and possessions promise security. Verses 22 to 34 is where Jesus walks through and says, do not worry. There are, Jesus says multiple times in here words, similar words for worry, anxiety, and fear. He says, you, will, you as a disciple will constantly be tempted to be afraid and to be anxious and to be worried. And it doesn't end just because you become a disciple. And so if you are here today and you go, I deal with anxiety and worry, know that Jesus says that's normal for a disciple. It is normal for a disciple to go, what about? He says, but I don't want you to stay there. I don't want you to stay there. 
Anxiety and worry might be a, an affliction and a temptation that disciples deal with. But he doesn't say, oh, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. He says, you have a father who loves you. Jesus' answer to their need for security is not, if you become a disciple, I'll give you enough money and your retirement will be secure and all of these things. He says, you actually have a father who loves you dearly. Some in this room have fathers that, that you know what it's like to be loved dearly by a dad that does come through and that does take you by the hand and that does provide the things that you need and that does support you and love you on the, your way through life. And some know what it's like to be abandoned by a father. Some know what it's like to be like, wait, if God is a father, how can I trust that he's going to be reliable? But the, the, uh, we may have had earthly fathers that forsake us and that ignore us and that have withheld from us and that have not provided for us the way they ought to. But that is not a picture of God the Father in this passage. It's a father who looks at us with great love and it is his delight to give that to his children. And so money and possessions, they try to fool us by promising us security. And Jesus says, if you are my disciple, you have a father who offers us the security of being a part of his family and getting his treasure. He promises to provide for you because you are his child. And when I was in, so I grew up in a big family, so I always shared a bedroom growing up. There's always somebody around. So when I went off to college, that was like my first time of being alone. But you're in a dorm, and you're kind of still surrounded by people. But then uh, my sophomore and junior year, I lived in my great aunt's basement. So she was kind of like a grandma to me. And they had an entire apartment in the basement. And it was my first experience of being alone. And I hated it. The house would creak. And the... And so I would lay in bed at night. This is my first experience of being alone. And I'm like, the locks on this house are not very good. They're all like closet door locks with like little push buttons. And like anybody, you know, who wanted to get into this house wouldn't even have to break something to get through. You could probably just jimmy the, the, the handle just a little bit and get into this house. And then sometimes my aunt and uncle would leave and go out of state for three weeks at a time. And so then I'm not only like just alone on the basement ground floor, but like I'm like alone, alone in the house. And I hated being alone and just come up with all sorts of scenarios that somebody might do something. Somebody might want the money that's in the house or something that's valuable in the house. I don't even know what would have been valuable that people would have wanted. But I just imagine all sorts of scenarios that somebody is going to come and someone's going to hurt me. Even now, I don't really like coming over to the church in, late at night after everything's dark if I do that alone. But what I've noticed is really strange is I really don't mind going outside in the dark if somebody or something is with me. If I have our dog, which our dog wouldn't scare anybody, like he's about this big and he looks like a marshmallow, but like he's not going to scare anybody. But if I'm not alone walking out at night, if I'm in the backyard in the middle of the night, it doesn't scare me. There's something about having somebody or something with me that makes me feel okay. And when I read Jesus speaking to his disciples that are scared, who are worried about where, what's going to come, and they worry about money and food and gas and bills, and they worry about the future, Jesus' answer is not, nothing is out there. 
What he says is there is a father who is with you that loves you. You're not alone. Money and possessions promise us security. And Jesus says, let me give you something better. How about a father that loves you dearly and that hears your prayers and wants to give you his best? He wants to give you the kingdom. You're not alone. So go into the future, young child, retired adult, knowing that you have a heavenly father who loves you. Know that it is his, de- his delight to give you the kingdom. That's what we see in verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He wants to give you his best. And so, the in- so money and possessions promise security. And there is an invitation that Jesus gives us to trust our father, not treasure, to provide and protect. And don't let other things promise they're going to do it. Don't let other things promise that, well, if I just get all of these details right, then my life will be secure. Don't let treasure try to protect you, to be your protection. But what if you come to this today and you go, Joe, in truth, I am so greedy. I just love getting more stuff. My happiness has been in how much stuff I can get. I measure my life by not what I have, but what I can get. What if you're here today and you hear this and all you hear is condemnation because money has been your security? Money has been the thing that you've chased your whole life. Where is the good news for those of us that don't look to our Heavenly Father to love and protect? Where is the good news those of us that are greedy? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus fled the love of money in your place. You see, that's one of the first temptations that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. His possessions and money. Jesus was saying, Jesus fled the love of money in your place. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that it was that Jesus, the God of the universe, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human form, in your place and in my place. Jesus trusted his heavenly father in your place and in my place so that we can have a righteousness apart from getting all of this right. Romans chapter 3 tells us, verse 21, that we can have a righteousness apart from the law, apart from just, okay, let me try to not be greedy today. Jesus was not greedy in my place and trusted the father in my place. And so his righteousness can be my righteousness. And so treasure didn't fool Jesus. And so, and his inheritance is now mine, not based on how good I can be. And so then that changes us from the inside out, changes our hearts so that we are like freed from needing money to secure us and going, I have an inheritance with a heavenly father who promises to never leave or forsake me. Even, to, even if my business or my farm fails, even if my retirement account goes because the economy tanks, Even if this job doesn't work out, I have a heavenly father with heavenly riches who has promised that he's never going to leave me or forsake me and that it is his desire to give me the kingdom. I don't have to twist his arm. How does that become yours? Maybe you're here today and you go, how how can I call God father for the first time? I've never done that. The story of the Bible is that God made the world and that makes him king over it. We know, what, we know that if you make something, you own it. And since God made the world, he owns the world. And since he made you and he made me, that means he owns us. It means he's the king over us. 
But Adam and Eve and you and I said, no, we will not live your way. We are not going to bow our knee to you. What calls that sin and says the wages of sin is death, physical death in this life and eternal death in hell forever. But instead of leaving us there, the the Bible tells us in the story of Jesus that though we have been greedy, breaking the Ten Commandments at this one point, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, living the life that we should live, and then dying the death that we should die, and then being raised to life. So that the measure of our life and the measure of our righteousness does not come from what we do, but the one that we trust in. It doesn't come just because we've heard the truth or we go, okay, that sounds good, but because we commit ourselves to that in repentance and faith. We commit ourselves to Jesus turning away from our sin and trusting him only to save us. That is how we can call God Father and then his inheritance becomes our inheritance. His security becomes our security. And his happiness becomes our happiness. If you have questions about that, grab me at the end of the service. Don't put it off and just go, oh, okay, maybe someday. No, let today be the day of salvation. And so here this passage. It says that at every point of our lives, treasure wants to fool us. But don't let it. Trust the Heavenly Father who loves you and wants to provide for you. Imagine what changes in your life when, when you don't listen to the voice of treasure promising happiness and security. But you know that your happiness and security are secured by the, the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. When you re, imagine what changes in your life when your security doesn't come from anything that you can touch here or that anybody else can touch here. But it, you are, your security comes from the fact that you have a Heavenly Father who loves you. And so you can lie down in peace at night. And you can go to work and you can look at bills and you can look at these things because he is our treasure and he is our satisfaction. Imagine what happens in a home when instead of the family trying to constantly measure its life and its happiness by what do we have? What do we spend? It's instead, look at who we have and look what he's guaranteeing for us. Imagine what happens in a church when we don't measure ourselves by people, by money, by activities, but we, we measure our happiness by the fact that we have a heavenly Father who gave himself for us, and he loves us dearly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you come to tell us the truth, but instead of just beating us up and saying, stop being greedy, you say, hey, here's everything I have. Let me give you a better inheritance. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts to respond in Jesus' name. Amen.